Welcome once again into the Radiopedia reading room for another week, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. Tis a radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, just like a co-host only smaller, <laughs> it's Frank Gaylard. What's today about disc- <laughs> skeletal dysplasias? Well, close. Not bad. Not bad. You're trying to decipher what I was saying there. No, it's yeah. actually, uh, it's paediatrics. Ah, uh, that so, makes more sense, yeah, I yeah. suppose. I was trying to do the whole spin on the old misnomer that paediatrics is not that hard. You know, children are just small Small adults. adults. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it didn't work, It, uh, but that hasn't stopped me before and it won't stop me with my intros in the future either. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if we're going to talk about children, uh, we mm-hmm. haven't had a pet goat in a little while and I feel like I need to get this off my chest because I think I'm almost alone here but children with food on their face that everyone else (laughs) thinks is adorable (laughs) I find just not just yuck I find it almost it's almost a phobia and and people go oh look how cute he is he can't put food (laughs) into his face without smearing it when my kids were young it was actually quite hard because I had to keep their face clean the whole time because I couldn't bear the thought of having some pumpkin mash on their chin. <laughs> I think you may be alone on this one. Oh, I despise it. How do you go if you're you know, having lunch, dinner with an adult or something and they get a little bit of food on their yeah, face? Yeah, that's, that's no good either. I have to avert my eyes. <laughs> I think you just tell them. Well, it depends if it's funny or not. Like if it's half a lamb chop hanging in a beard, then I think you leave it. <laughs> I usually tell them straight away, but what do you do when you get like five, ten minutes down the track before you notice it? Do you do you tell them then when you know that it's been there for a while? Or Yeah, I, I think you're always, you would want to know, right? So You would, but there's a time one. delay where it becomes more awkward to point sure. it out. My wife and I have uh, a complicated set of hand signals to indicate if you've got food on your teeth or something, including like which quadrant and which tooth. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Well, we do have to get to today's uh, paediatric panel discussion. It's hosted by the smoothest voice in radiology, Vikas Shah, and features Jeremy Jones from Edinburgh and John Ardu from London. But Gaylord, you messaged me earlier. And you said you have an app recommendation yes, to share I with do. us. Yes, I do. I do indeed. It's not a sponsor. It's just something I wanted to, to bring up. Okay. So this might come as a bit of a shock, but I, I have a natural tendency towards self-improvement slash life hack, you know, getting things done, etc. But oh, I, ne- um, I never detected that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's sort of tempered by a fairly lackluster self-discipline. I, I don't have very good impulse control and I definitely have a very short attention span. And... Um, it's not uncommon for me to fall into bad habits and not notice. Um, and I noticed that I had fallen into a number and those were watching YouTube a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much just, um, you know, the algorithm stuff, but some of those bloody YouTube shorts, which are, are like crack cocaine. I don't yeah. know why it's pointless, but I caught myself spending half an hour or an hour watching these <laughs> ridiculous shorts uh but also you know drinking too much and eating too much chocolate the cocktails were particularly problematic as we were striving to get the perfect conference cocktails for r23 (laughs) yeah yeah you took one for the team there yeah yeah great sacrifice there yes but i found an app that uh has really had a surprising effect and it's called way of life it's a simple little idea where you put down 
what you would like to or not do each day. So for example, you might say 30 minutes of exercise and each day you have to just tick or cross whether you achieved that thing, whether Mm -hmm. you did it. So it's kind of like a daily to do and it lets you chart how you're going, et cetera. And so I've just put a few like, don't watch YouTube before lunchtime and don't have more than one drink or have no drinks even, although that's Mm -hmm. harder to achieve or don't snack on chocolate. It's such a tiny little nudge. And yet I've found that it's been particularly helpful in the YouTube thing. I'm now at like a hundred days of not having watched YouTube before lunchtime at all. I thought, you know, this is a simple little thing. It's almost gamification, but used for good instead of evil. Yeah. It's what we've been talking about previously, isn't it? That incentive to do something. So YouTube, drinking, anything else you use it for? Exercise is in there. Mm -hmm. It's also a way of tracking how much you do something. So it's pretty easy to think, oh, you know, I don't drink every night. But when you actually have to keep a record and you notice, oh, my God, it's like 38 days since I've had an alcohol-free day, (laughs) it stops you kind of lying to yourself a little bit. And it's like, oh, actually, this is how often I eat chocolate. You can put negative things in there, but you can also put positive things in there, right? Yeah. So you can set it up to, you know, things you want to do or things you want to avoid. Yeah. And then you tick it green if if you did the thing you wanted to do, which might be avoid eating chocolate or do exercise. And then you've got this really quick and easy way of seeing how you're going and you get little runs if you manage to do more than one day in a row. I can think of three things that I'd put in there mainly, and that would be positive reinforcement. You know, have you taken some time to connect with wife of the podcast today? (laughs) Have you taken some dedicated time to connect with daughter of the podcast, son of the podcast? Yeah. I don't struggle with a lot of the other tasks that I have to do in the day and to avoid some of the things that I don't need to do, but those connections with, with the humans around you that sometimes you get to the end of the day and you go, oh, we've just existed together. We haven't really connected. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And, And it's really easy for relationship with particularly those that are closest to you to become mm. really transactional yeah. and you live in the same house and you do things and you keep the house and the family kind of going without actually spending time with each other. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, I might add a couple. You don't want too many though. You know, you don't want to have a, a list of 40 things each day or it'll, you just give up. I might give those three a go and see. See see what happens. Uh, Well, let's get into today's panel discussion. So this was recorded at Radiopedia 2021. It's hosted by Vikas Shah and features two pediatric radiologists and coincidentally two of the nicest humans you could ever hope to meet, Jeremy Jones and John Ardu. So let me hit play now and then Frank and I will be back for another chat after this. Unless, of course, he sets himself the in-app goal of podcasting less in the meantime. (laughs) No, surely not, mate. Surely not. Never. All right, let's listen in. Okay, so I'm now joined by the speakers of those two talks, Jeremy Jones and John Adu. Hi, guys. How are you both? Yeah, good. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you for joining me for this discussion. (laughs) Both of you are pediatric radiologists. I am a body abdominal radiologist, but for adults. But the claw sign that you described in your talk, Jeremy, we talk about a lot in adult abdominal radiology. I just was thinking that when it's really useful, but when masses are large, then you can often be fooled by the pseudo 
clause sign, right? In fact, you should be thinking about what other signs there are in relation to the mass so that you don't place too much weight on the clause sign. What do you reckon about that? Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, as we um, went through um, our exam findings or exam preparation in uh, early radiology, we learned about the different signs of Wilms and neuroblastoma. We had this list of one and this list of the other. And I think I kind of highlighted in the talk there that they are great, but they're, they're only great in some circumstances. It doesn't always work. Um, and one of those is, is the claw sign. So the claw sign is brilliant when it's a smaller mass, but as it gets bigger, it can be really hard. Mm. And the thing I showed actually, one um, really big neuroblastoma that was really pushing down the kidney, and it pushes down the kidney so much that the, the peripheral portions kind of wrap around the, the neuroblastoma, making it look a little bit like a claw sign. So yeah, you've got to be careful, I suppose, with any sign in radiology. They're really helpful in some circumstances, but you've got to look at the whole picture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. John, fantastic talk. And, you know, I I was just thinking that when I used to be a trainee, I was scared of a few aspects of pediatric radiology, <laughs> but in particular, things like interception, you know, when they arrive out of hours and you have to do the scan and you're thinking, oh, if it's positive, I might have to do the reduction, right? But you, from your talk, you look like a man who has no fear of anything, right? There's so much energy in your talk. So how do you convey that to your trainees? You know, how do you, how do you get rid of that fear? What tips do you have for people watching about how to approach that situation? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess the first thing is, uh, do you best to stay calm? And I know it's probably easier said than done because it's uh, an emotive and a high stress situation. The parents are already anxious um, and the kids are almost certainly going to start crying. Um, but stay calm. And I think the other thing I would say is try to be prepared as much as possible. So if you know that you're not in a center that's going to have to do it, as in do the interception reduction, you might be the one to put the probe on the child but not have to do it, then that's fine. But you just you need to know that um, and then also know who your referral centers are. Uh, when it actually comes down to the scan itself, it's not a scan you need to take 20 minutes to do. Um, I found that within either a minute or two, it's either there or it's not. And if you need to go hunting, it's probably not. And actually, the more time you, you spend trying to take perfect pictures, actually, you are just upsetting the child. So usually it's a binary yes or no. And um, just know who's on. Um, so when I was the, the red on call at night, I know, I guess I was, it had an interest in peace, but then I'd know who's covering me. Um, and the logistics, where's, where's the kit? Where's the catheters? Where's the machines? When I have to send a machine on, who's the surgeon on call? So I would just know those things in advance. And that takes a lot of the stress from the actual situation when you are there in the moment. Um, so I guess like a lot of things, um, try and stay calm and prepare as much as possible and just right. pray it doesn't happen over the middle of the night. So, so yeah, so good awareness of the logistical support around you is almost as important as the actual knowledge of the radiology and the skill set of imaging itself, right? Because it makes your, it makes your life easier at, the, you know, in the middle of the night when that situation arises, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think your point there about um, it being a binary thing is, is so true, isn't it? You know, the interception is essentially the size of their fist in their belly. <laughs> And if you find it, you found it. Brilliant. If you haven't found it, you go searching. You might end up, you know, calling something else, um, absolutely. which is no help to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, pediatric radiology very heavily uh, uses ultrasound, and you showed that in both of your talks, and also fluoroscopy, as you showed in your talk. 
John, and I know that MRI is being used increasingly and particularly because of the lack of radiation, so it's very suitable for children. So I was wondering, Jeremy, you talked about neuroblastoma imaging mm. and particularly the use of MIG, MIBG for staging of distant bone disease. So is there any mm -hmm. role for whole body MRI as a replacement for MIBG? Well, there have been a couple of studies actually where they've tried to look at whole body MRI with diffusion weighted imaging. and it's not as good as MIBG. MIBG is still the gold standard. Um, and actually, most of the, the work around uh, how you treat these patients is based on MIBG status of the tumour. So it would be very difficult to actually use MRI as a, as a different modality. I think it can be quite helpful in MIBG uh, negative or uh, reduced avidity tumours. So some neuroblastoma doesn't take up MIBG as avidly and therefore their metastases won't pick up uh, take up MIBG either so there's maybe a role for MRI whole body in those patients um, but we're certainly not in the position where we want to be replacing MIBG I think anytime soon. Right so it's not it's not just actually detecting the bone disease it's also detecting whether or not it's active in regards to that particular tracer and then that that's got therapeutic implications right so correct that's that's interesting and then john i was just thinking how in the adult world there's a trend towards wanting to reduce negative appendicectomy rates right so in many centers mm -hmm. all patients are imaged uh, before they even reach a surgeon's scalpel um, and if the ultrasound's inconclusive then typically we'll do a ct so I was wondering, is there a similar trend in the paediatric world? And if so, what do you do after the ultrasound? Is there a role for MRI? I think that's a really interesting point, And there are a few different considerations. Um, as you know, as peds folk, we just love ultrasound, can do ultrasound all day long. And because of the paucity of abdominal fat, um, it's really, really uh, a helpful and um, an easy test to do. But as you say, sometimes it's inconclusive. And I think there'll be many situations where that might be the case. Sometimes the kid is just crying and inconsolable and that you can't get a good quality study, no matter how good your technique is. So I think in the situation when you are faced with an inconclusive scan, you've got a few things that you can do. And MRI certainly is on the table. Um, I'd say one of the limitations is that if you've got a four-year-old, not quite old enough to tell them just to lie still, but at the same time, they're too big for a feed and wrap. Where do you go? Is it going to give sedation? Then when are you going to get a slot in the MRI scanner? So there is part of the logistical concern. If it's an overnight thing as well, you know, we're going to get an MRI. So there's those side of things as well. I'd say more often than not in my personal practice, we would actually repeat the ultrasound scan um, right. with some reasonable analgesia on board and an iPad and then try and get the, car the child as calm as possible. Um, and actually be surprised sometimes 12 to 24 hours later the appendix just pops up mm -hmm. and you can see it and it's positive or negative and of course both are helpful so i'd say mri is certainly um a tool that we need to have in our armory um, but i'd say that i use it relatively infrequently and more often than not i would do a repeat scan and if it's the middle of the night actually even though we are dose conscious and if the patient is really sick very pertinent then we may need to do a ct what do you think jeremy what do you guys do yeah, so similar. I think uh, repeating the ultrasound is, is a really useful thing to do because actually sometimes the kid is just absolutely freaked out the first time they meet you yeah. with an ultrasound machine and then the second time they've chilled out, they've had, as you say, some analgesia um, and they're much more relaxed and you can push a bit harder because that's actually how you're going to find the appendix. 
I think we, we don't MR our queer appendicitis. They either get found on the second ultrasound, they go to theatre, or they have a CT. And it's the, the sick ones who the surgeons are concerned about. You know, is there, they're not behaving like a normal acute appendicitis. It might have been grumbling for a while. They want to know that they're not going to open up the belly and find a complete mess um, that they should have treated with antibiotics in the first place. And so that's where the CT for us, I think, is helpful, making the right choice to not take the child to, to the theatre. Right. Uh, Jeremy, in your talk uh, where you showed all the different types of tumours that are seen on imaging, I was thinking that, mm. you know, the clinicians may have an inkling as to what's going on, for example, if the child presents with an abdominal mass, but mm. really the first person to really make the diagnosis is the person who obtains the images, which is you mm. as the the sonographer or the, the radiologist. And with kids, parents are often in the rooms with them when they're having the scan. So do you experience any pressure uh, from the parents to tell them, you know, what's going on when you're the first person to make that diagnosis? How do you handle that situation? Yeah, so, you know, often that is the case. We are, you know, the, the person who's making or confirming the diagnosis. I think most of the time, the parents come around knowing that somebody's already found a lump in the belly. And I think most of them have already got that inkling that something's not right. Mm. And my experience is actually those patients or those parents ask fewer questions than normal. Yeah. The ones who have a normal examination, the parents are asking, you know, is it okay, doctor? Is everything fine? But the ones actually where you know actually you've got a reasonably sizable abdominal tumour, mm. they're the ones who just sit there quietly. Now, it's important not to lie to people or to misdirect them but at the same point you know an ultrasound room is not the place to break bad news in fact it's probably the worst place to plus the clinician who's looking after them is going to know other information some blood results the history and will either be in a better place to break that bad news or refer them on to you know, an oncology service or, or something so while we are you know the people who maybe see that tumor for the first time and make the diagnosis sit there for quite a while trying to get the best view to get some measurements my experience is actually the parents don't actually ask that much and okay. they're they're recognizing that you're taking lots of pictures of of the mass um and in a way they don't really want to know and so they don't ask lots of questions if they do ask questions i tend to say look i'm doing these pictures i'm taking lots of images i need to go and look at this on um the, the other monitors to get a better idea of what's going on here and so kind of telling them that something's not right but not really telling them what that is yeah right it's 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 you're not you're not exactly saying it in those exact terms but it's almost it it's it's, it's understood right yeah. yeah yeah now john of the many different conditions you you mentioned in your talk those are things that we have a lot of us have learned about pediatric radiology but something new that's come up in the last year is covid related multi-system mm -hmm. inflammatory disease and i know that there are some abdominal uh, manifestations of that so can you tell us a little bit more about what you might expect to see on imaging are there any specific learning points from your experience yeah it was uh, a really interesting journey and when it first happened we didn't quite know what was happening and why 
and they were just sick and actually I remember the first one it was during um, a residential on call and this kid was just deteriorating in front of me and became increasingly hypotensive and I think they dropped the systolic down to um, 60 or 70 and it was just profound septic shock and I was scanning the abdomen because it was a query appendicitis but I think everyone in the room knew that it was a bit more than appendicitis but not quite sure exactly what was going on and it was all a bit vague actually there was some free fluid in, in this particular child there's some free fluid there was some borderline small bowel thickening and I saw the appendix and it was kind of borderline measurement nothing to say that this is definitely appendicitis but at the same time nothing concrete to kind of hang your hat on so it was all a bit vague but this child was um, very sick and then we had a cluster of about five or six um, more or less back to back within a space of that week um, so I work in a large uh, tertiary centre in central London so they a lot of them came to us and we also just did we scanned everything so we did ultrasounds initially and then we did CT chest after pelvis because actually we weren't really sure and we saw some bits in the lungs but not the classic COVID that we've come to see with the ground glass and and the peripheral distribution it was all very very non-specific very vague and didn't really make much sense Um, and it was only as we saw more of these cases and the the literature became um, more established that we knew that it was part of this inflammatory um, syndrome, which is also associated with coronary artery uh, aneurysms. And the latter took us by surprise because we thought, why are they getting chest pain? Uh, but thankfully, we had a, a few people who specialised in echo in our hospital and, and then diagnosed them. So I'd say that my experience of it was um, was quite scary, actually, because mm. we didn't really know what was happening and we were all on this massive learning curve. And at the same time, there wasn't anything to say. It's definitely this. It was this cluster of, of vagueness, um, which I think some ways led to more anxiety. Um, so yes, to answer your question, is there anything specific? Um, not really, only that if they have a positive COVID swab, think, think about the belly. Um, it's not just about the lungs. Um, and also think about the heart as well. I think that's something that we learned after one of the patients had severe chest pain and then someone put a, a probe on their chest. So that was definitely one of the, the key learning points, actually. It must be tricky, right, um, to be the person that usually everyone looks to for an answer. Yeah. Um, because that's what we do in radiology. We give them all the answers, isn't it, most of the time. And to be sitting there going, actually, we don't know what's going on here. Absolutely. And kind of nobody knew. It was all crazy and, and so anxiety-provoking. Um, a crazy time to be a doctor. Yeah, but a lot of learning for everyone. And it was just amazing how, you know, so much information was rapidly disseminated around the world from people who are gaining experience, you know, very rapidly from uh, from uh, treating patients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, thank you both for joining me for this fantastic session. And once again, thank you for your lectures. Thank you, as always, to the smoothest voice in radiology, the one and only Vikas Shah for hosting that discussion, and also to Jeremy Jones and John Ardu. Uh, here's, here's an app idea, Gaylard, the John Ardu app, right, <laughs> where each day he records you a little a little message full, full of positivity and hope. <laughs> I don't know, Dixon. If the last 10 years have taught us anything, it's that positive messages don't sell very well <laughs> maybe maybe you could create an app where each day you're presented with 
hundreds of paranoid, divisive, fear-inducing lies and that would be oh. more successful. <laughs> Hang on, that that sounds like Twitter. That sounds like <laughs> Twitter, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. No, I just, if you watch one of John Ardu's lectures, when you've got his, his face there, his big smile, uh, amazing. I've never seen someone be so engaging through through a, a virtual conference no, as, as John Ardu. And he's coming back uh, to give another lecture at Radiopedia 2023 oh, this year. So really looking forward to to that. Now, I'm going to, to rule that we don't talk about the COVID part of that discussion there. I think I get a little bit of PTSD <laughs> anytime I hear COVID, uh, mainly because of the homeschooling. <laughs> oh, God, yes. It was awful. Speaking about drinking too much. The, the the hardest rule I could force myself to do is to not drink until at least the end of school. So <laughs> 3 p.m. became, uh, woohoo, Negroni. Yeah. <laughs> I made it. it. It is interesting to um, to think about all the changes, though, that have happened as a result of COVID, not not necessarily medical kind of changes, but just changes to, to our lives. Cause I oh, think- absolutely. Like our conference wouldn't have existed yeah. and therefore this podcast by extension. Yeah, because we just, you know, the reason for this podcast was really using the panel discussions from from the conference. So, yeah, and, and and the way I work now, you know, I'm spending a lot less time at the hospital, a lot more time on Radiopedia, and that I yeah. think is directly related to to the pandemic. And, you know, we had quite extensive lockdowns here in Melbourne, as Zoe alluded to in last week's yeah. episode. But I'm glad you, you mentioned a near PTSD about it because I still get these pangs of uh, not panic, but disquiet when particularly if I'm walking somewhere on a public holiday or on a weekend and the streets unexpectedly deserted Mm -hmm. my mind's taken back to that lockdown period and it has a a weird anxious dreamlike quality mostly because of homeschooling if I'm fair (laughs) but um just generally it was such a bizarre time and um I'm sure we're not the only ones that feel like that at the time I I felt like I coped quite well with it but it's just yeah in in retrospect looking back it was yeah it was a very challenging time obviously um so we're not going to talk about it (laughs) but then but then we've just talked about it (laughs) so let's get to the panel discussion itself i thought jeremy's comments about sharing bad news or not sharing bad news were interesting what did you think of that frank oh i mean sharing bad news always is hard and, and i'm really grateful that i don't do ultrasound because being in a room with someone when you're clearly measuring something and they're worried and you're trying to skirt around it. And as Jeremy says, it's the it's the worst possible time. But but then to add to it parents and children, ever since having kids, uh, the parenting and sick kids thing, I could never, never do it. I remember this was when my older son who's a regular listener of the podcast does your son oh, really listen to the podcast no not at all no so so he can be official eldest son of the podcast okay <laughs> <laughs> anyway when he was about four or something at, in the evening he was sitting on the couch and he complained that his hand was sore and as good medical parents we oscillate wildly between hypochondria and, and neglect and so we just <laughs> told him to go to sleep That's and good. stop being annoying and the next morning when he woke up, his hand was swollen literally like a balloon, not figuratively, but mm-hmm. it was so edematous that the skin was really shiny, but he wasn't particularly sore. And so I raced him to the Royal Children's Hospital 
and uh, you know said, "I'm associate Frank Gaylord. I need to see an emergency <laughs> physician immediately." <laughs> and um, so this consultant guy came out, and he was great. And he was looking at the hand, and he said, "Hmm, it's interesting. You know, um, it's probably an insect bite, but usually you can see the the bite mark. Mm-hmm. It could be an infection, but usually." You know, you'd expect them to be sicker or in more pain. It could be leukemia. Eh, it's probably not <laughs> leukemia. He <laughs> just threw it in. Like the moment he said that, my I almost flatlined. I couldn't hear anything afterwards. And all I heard was the word leukemia. And it was I know that he said it because he was speaking to another medical person. And so he got into mm-hmm. shop talk rather than patient yeah. parent talk. But that had such a profound effect until the swelling went down with the histamine. <laughs> and I can't imagine the the way that you remember these life-changing conversations with doctors about your own health or even worse about children's health. And to know that you're having one of those conversations as the doctor is a, a tremendous weight on clinicians and one that I'm glad I don't have to do. And, and Jeremy uh, is incredible at mm. this. And uh, you've seen his lecture on um, giving expert witness in child yeah. abuse cases. Yeah. I mean, talk about things that I'm glad I don't have to do, but I'm very glad someone like Jeremy does. But I don't know. I, I don't think I could do it. How do you, Does it affect you a great deal? Well, I, I do some uh, musculoskeletal ultrasound and and occasionally have to be involved with obstetric ultrasound as well. And so you do get into these situations where you're scanning the patient. And and in my experience, they often do want to know mm. at the time. Sometimes you can kind of deflect a little bit and say, oh, you know, we have to look at the, the images in, in more detail and discuss with, with your referring doctor and then we'll, we'll issue a report. But other times I find myself having to give them a bit of information about what's going on, particularly if I'm not certain about what's going on. I'll tell them, you know, I, I'm not yeah. 100% clear, you know, what this is. Um, and sometimes they want to know, you know, some of the details and I'll go through it. The reality is there's, you know, there's no good option. No. Because the not saying anything, despite measuring repeatedly something that's 13 yeah. centimetres across in a belly, you're not fooling anyone. Like yeah. the patient knows, and it's awful to leave that room having deliberately been kept in the quiet when you yeah. know something's wrong. But the flip side has its downsides as well, mm. and muddying the waters, uh, and especially going out of your area, I think is probably the thing to avoid the most. Yeah, Most of the time what I say is very much judged by my ability to just engage with the patient and kind of detect their anxiety or how comfortable they are, detect their level of background understanding and then kind of yeah. react to that. So it's not like a one a one size fits all approach yeah. to these situations. I'm very much adapting and generally I think that kind of works well. Um, but it is, yeah, it is a tricky situation. And then I don't have to deal with it generally with with pediatrics. So that would be a whole nother layer of difficulty, I would oh, imagine. God, yes. Yeah. Uh, anything else to discuss about pediatric radiology, Frank? Not other than the fact I'm glad I don't do it. Yeah, and we're very thankful to people like Jeremy and John. Uh, well, let's let's wrap this episode up then. Um, how can people get in contact with us, Frank? 
Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Galen and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And of course, you can also email us at a podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and feedback. Remember, the more entertaining your email, the more likely you are to be read out on our next hostful episode. Absolutely. And uh, don't forget that if you want to support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. And uh, not only do you get access to all this amazing content, but you also help us ensure that our conference and all our courses are available for free to all people in low and middle income countries. And that's uh, 125 currently countries. And, and what else can people do to help us, Frank? And don't forget that you can help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Now, do you track your weekly Stay Rad performance in your app, Gaylord? <laughs> no, because it's daily. It's daily. Okay, so it's, it can't can't be tracked. John John Ardu, he wouldn't he wouldn't need to track it. He wouldn't need to track anything. I don't think he'd nail the Stay Rad every week and leave everyone thoroughly satisfied at the end of every episode. <laughs> Maybe we should have uh, guest Stay Rads where people no. just record. No, it has to be me. No, mate. Yeah, it has to be you. People I wouldn't, wouldn't mind delegating that. I know you wouldn't. That's why I'm forcing <laughs> you to do it. <laughs> all right, I'll read my little bit. So we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay right, everyone. See you next week. <laughs> See you, mate. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.